Good evening. We just hit 40. 43. We're cruising now. It's time to begin tonight. Uh, I think we got all of our bases covered with so many people gone. We, we've had to fill in a few spots, but we'll start tonight with number 394. 
Scripture reading for this evening comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Galatians 2, verses 18 through 20. This is from the New International Version. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this evening. Father, just thanking you for this opportunity. We come here and worship you. Father, we've had a great day, and Father, just ask that um, you continue to be with us as we go through this service. Just pray that everything we do here brings glory and honor to your name. Father, we are mindful of the ones who are not with us this evening, um, whether they're sick or shut in. Just ask that you be with them, Father, and if it be your will, return them to a normal portion of health. Father, we're mindful of the ones that are traveling, whether it's on vacation or wherever they are, Father, just ask that you guide, that you guide them and look over them, and Father, just give them safety. Father, we're also mindful of the ones that are on the mission trip in Tennessee. Father, just pray that um, they do your will, Father, and they can reach uh, lives of people who do not know you yet. Father, just continue to be with us. Be with Rick as he gives us our lesson this evening. Uh, pray that he has a good recollect, recollection of what he has studied, Father, and it, he presents it in a way that he touches our hearts. Forgive us, Father, of everything that we've done wrong. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. For lesson tonight, number 823, 
if you're using a book and want to mark it, the Song of Invitation will be 319. Number 823, would you stand please? Sabbath morning we shall see Jesus in the air, coming after you and me, he joins us to share. What rejoicing there will be when the saints shall rise, heading for that jubilee yonder in the skies. Please. Song of Meditation is 319. 319. Get all my buttons turned on here. I talk about uh, forethoughts and afterthoughts, and uh, that may not be uh, become clear until we get more toward the end of the lesson as to what I'm actually talking about, but that's okay. Memory is a funny thing. Have you ever gone from, from one room to the next uh, and forgot why you, uh, why you went there? Just a few moments before, you made the decision to go in there and get something, do something, and when you got there, only a few seconds later, it was totally gone. Have you ever forgotten a word and had to come up with a description? One that comes to mind or came to mind when I was putting this together. I think a friend of Karen said that she couldn't think of pancake juice. She couldn't think of the word for pancake juice, so she had to come up with pancake juice to supply <clears throat> instead of syrup. Um, have you ever had something on your mind and you get distracted? and then you absolutely cannot reassemble that original item uh, in, your, in your mind. 
age obviously contributes to this. Um, you will find that the older you get, um, the less uh, acute your memory is. Uh, the more um, tricks you have to use to remember things. Um, and we'll talk more about those uh, later. It could be that just there are too many distractions that contribute to your life and, and cloud your brain so much so that trying to settle in on one thing for any longer period of time than going from one room to the next uh, makes, makes it difficult. Um, too many distractions and maybe it's just the inability to focus um, and those could be contributed to by the, those other two. Paul in Galatians 2 and verse 20 that Greg read for us a while ago. He was talking there about uh, the old law and how he had died to the old law and that if he went back into it, uh, it would be so futile because there is nothing in the old law that has an appeal for him anymore. He said he was dead to it. But notice what he says he is alive to. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. If there's one word that I think I could settle in on that would characterize Paul, both before he became a Christian and after, would be zeal. The man was full of zeal. Whatever his task was, he was that 100%. He even mentions the fact that uh, among his peers in the Jewish religion, he far surpassed all of their efforts, their commitments, their uh, dedication to persecuting the Christians. And once he became a Christian... I don't know that you could say that his zeal was any less for that 120, 120, 180 degree about face that he engaged in as a preacher and as an apostle of God and of Christ. Everything Paul said and did went through what you might call his Christ filter. Christ was living in him. Christ was so much a part of who he was and what he was. Christ, the knowledge that he had gained from inspiration and from uh, if our, our uh, surmising that the, the third heaven that he spent uh, when he talks about it in 2 Corinthians uh, with, with Christ, the time he spent there was eating him alive, was in him. It was him. And so everything he did was, was um, fed through this Christ filter. So it, as he says in Galatians 2 and verse 20, he wasn't in control anymore. Christ was in control. He had internalized God's word and his will and his instruction for him so much that he could say those words. He was the medium. He was the conduit. He was the... Uh, he was acting in a second nature format, you could almost say. He didn't have to think what was the right or wrong thing to do uh, in most cases. And we would have to say 
he still had his free will. And we know that I believe it's in Galatians uh, a few chapters later. He says, I still struggle. This side of me, the flesh says, I want to do this. The spirit side of me says, no, I need to be doing this. And he says, these two are in, in, in constant battle. And I, I, I'm at a loss to figure out what those sins might be, what those temptations might be. But he says he had them. But by and large, everything that he did, he had Christ living in him and his actions on behalf of Christ, maybe we could qualify it that way, became second nature to him. And he could go on, we might say, autopilot. Christ living in him so much that he didn't really have to think about it. So in our walk, our Christian walk, our attempts to serve God. What are some of the things that we can do? We are forgetful creatures. We know that. Uh, we need reminders or tricks or gimmicks or uh, triggers or something called uh, mnemonics. I remember when I was studying for my comprehensive exams for my doctoral program. They give you uh, the questions ahead of time, which is really good. But it's the question. It's a question like. Tell us in, in as many ways as you can the difference between qualitative research and quantitative research. I mean, there's a whole realm of, of ways to go about those. And so I found in a textbook a list of about 10 to 15 characteristics of qualitative research and about 20 of quantitative research. And I developed a mnemonic. I took the first letter of each one of those and remembered the first letters and studied the rest of it enough so that I could, I could pretty much replicate and reproduce what that, what that page said in that book and elaborated on it a little bit enough that I didn't have a trouble, have trouble with that. Maybe you've seen this. If you ever had in your geography classes to name the Great Lakes, here is a way to do that. Just picture a home on a lake and that's your mnemonic H, Ontario, Michigan, Erie, Superior, H-O-M-E-S, is a way to remember the names of the Great Lakes. And there are thousands of those. People use them on a regular basis. And I'm pretty sure when they are tested in school, they do that a lot if they have to recall details like that. Have you ever wondered when you come, on, come upon a, uh, uh, an, an algebraic equation or a mathematical uh, equation where you have pluses and minuses and division and multiplication and all that. What do you do first? Where do you go first? Here's a mnemonic for that I found. Uh, PEMDAS, whatever that is, it's just a way to remember the first letter of each one. You start with your parentheses, your exponents, your multiplications, your division, addition, and then subtraction last. And then you can figure it out without getting things out of order so that you don't get the question wrong. And there, like I say, are thousands of these and some that even haven't been created yet. When I was a department head, if I hadn't had these, I'd have been dead. My, my desk was literally covered with them all around the desk pad there. And they were reminders that certain day, certain time, whatever, I had to do something or a meeting that I uh, was having with someone uh, we, we have to find ways to uh, help ourselves remember. Calendars on our phones are great, and you can even set an alarm.
for that calendar for at the time that you're supposed to do it, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour ahead of time, a couple hours ahead of time, a day ahead of time, if you want that much uh, headway. So we have ways that we cope with to help our memories. So a trigger is something that causes something else to happen. When I lie in my bed at night and I say goodnight to my wife, I roll over and I put my head on my pillow. My right ear touching the pillow is a reminder to me to pray before I go to sleep. Is that the best time to do that? Probably not because I am just about asleep when I, <laughs> when I put my head on the pillow anyway. But I, it, it is a trigger for me to remind me that if I haven't prayed during the day, that that is, an, that is the time that I have set aside to do that, to speak with God, to, to uh, commune with him. And at least, at least I have that. And a trigger is something that causes something else to happen. I use it as a reminder to pray or think about or consider God. You ever heard of these two words? Frontlets or phylacteries. Here's a picture uh, off the internet uh, of these. Here is an example of how it works. You, uh, see if I can find my pointer here. Right here, you have on the uh, man's forearm this little box right here. And then you have the straps going around his wrist and, the wrist and then down through his fingers. And that was something that he used to help him to remember and focus on God. The other one is probably the one for the head. And this is what that looks like. It's a little box. And I'll show you in a minute what, what's in it. That reminds them that God is to have a focus in their life. God is to have a part of their life. That they are to remember God whenever they can. During their day so that they don't uh, forget him. Deuteronomy 6.8, which we'll look at in just a minute, uh, talks about these uh, phylacteries. Um, it's a little box with God's laws rolled up inside. You can see over here on uh, this side, there's a little opening there with a little tray. And this would have been a script from uh, the old law of some sort. And that would have been strapped to his head up here. Whoops. Initially... I think I'm convinced that God meant this figuratively. He didn't mean for them to strap boxes on their forehead or strap boxes on their arms because of how, what he says about these. Later, they took it literally. I, I'm pretty sure that's the situation. Here's the definition. These were worn on the forehead and were written on four strips of parchment and put into four little cells within a square case which had on it the Hebrew letter Shin, the three points of which were regarded as the emblem of God. This case tied around the forehead in a particular way was called the tefillah on the head. They had prescribed, not from God, but man had prescribed widths and lengths of those and, um, and even the substance that they were written on uh, couldn't be any broader than a finger and no longer than a cubit, 18 to 24 inches, something like that. So man had added to what God, I think, intended as figurative language. Pharisees wore them at all times. 
in Matthew 23, that's the chapter where, uh, where Jesus calls them viper, brood of vipers and hypocrites and really lays into them. He talks about them broadening their phylacteries so that they're even bigger than they normally were. Well, why would they do that? To impress people with their piety. And Jesus said, you all are sons of the devil because you're not pious. You're not following the old law. You're following your laws that you have added to the old law. And he condemns them for broadening the phylacteries, uh, their, their um, the borders of their robes and, and things, things of this nature. Here's Deuteronomy 6, 8 and then repeated in uh, Deuteronomy 11. Before they crossed the Jordan, uh, I think these words come from Joshua, uh, through Joshua, from God. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. Impress them on your heart and your soul, not on your forearm and not on your, your forehead. You shall bind them as a sign, like a sign on your hand, and they shall be like frontals on your foreheads, and you shall teach them to your sons. Take, uh, talking of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you rise up, and when you, you will write them on the doorposts of your house and of your gates. It could have been all of that was symbolic, simply meaning feel this as deeply as you can. He starts out by saying, write this on your heart and your soul. And I'm thinking, and I could be wrong, and I'll... I'll if somebody has more information on that, I'll be happy to go do more research. But I do know for a fact that God wanted them to be, have these things in their hearts and their souls, not in things that were external to their, their beings. Be ever mindful of following my commandments is essentially what he was saying here with this. You may wear or have worn a cross or a crucifix. My understanding of the difference between the two, if I remember back when I created this lesson, is that the cross is simply the cross and the crucifix has an image of, of Jesus um, on there, hung on the cross. Um, it began, this, this concept began as early as the second century, according to historians, which is the 100s, which is right after the first century, as you know. There was some reluctance to buy into this because of the gruesome nature of the cross, that it was a reminder of how, how cruel the Roman government was um, in uh, trying to convince Christians to denounce their Christianity. By early 3rd century, it was, had become uh, almost uniquely associated with Christ, and uh, the crucifix was not uh, used with Christ on that cross, some image on there until uh, almost the 6th century. You might hang a cross in your home, place it on the front of a rostrum uh, that we have back here. I don't, I don't think we have one. Do we? we have one here? Okay. But we could. Okay. It's a reminder. There's nothing wrong with reminders um, unless they are carried to the extreme the way we just talked about with those frontlets and phylacteries. It's a reminder. It's a visual emphasis of its importance. Jeremiah 31, 33 and recounted, uh, re-emphasized re in Hebrews twice. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declared the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel 
with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. In the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So the old law tablets of stone new law written on our hearts old law no forgiveness of sins I will only a remembrance or a reminder of sins new law I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more he wants that on their hearts he wants them to know that he will forgive their sins and that is a condition that was never guaranteed or never mentioned or granted under the old law at least while the old law was in effect. Romans 2.15 says, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts <clears throat> alternately accusing or else defending them. Paul, in this section of Romans, is talking about contrasting the law that the Israelites had versus the absence of law, at least a written law, that the Gentiles had. Yet he says there is a law that they do by nature. There is a, I guess you could call it a natural law. There are things that the Gentiles did or did not do that would violate their conscience because they felt it was the right thing to do. They didn't have the tablets of stone. They didn't have the old law. They didn't have that relationship with Yahweh. But what they did have was an innate sense of right and wrong. And I do believe that that is placed within us um, at creation. Let us make man in our own image. I believe that's part of that. And so... We have the Gentiles <clears throat> who do the natural law and keep the natural law because it violates their conscience when they don't. And he says that has become law with a capital L to them because they wrote it on their hearts and their conscience was offended when they broke that law. And what he was saying to the Jews was, why aren't you that way? When you break the law. Why aren't you that way? Well, naturally, by this time, church had been established, and what he was trying to do was to show them that the old law was, was no longer effective. Christianity, law, a law of Christ, was now in operation. And even the Gentiles, who were somewhere in between, were better than the Jews, who were still <clears throat> worried about a law that was not written on their hearts. At least the Gentiles had their hearts affected and we hope that the Christians <clears throat> did as well. 2 Corinthians 3, 3 says, Do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? 
evidently there were some in this passage who were going around and, and teaching. I don't know whether that was false doctrine or real doctrine or whatever, but they would get letters from these various churches and say, yes, wherever you're going, you can take this letter over here and <clears throat> present it as evidence that, yeah, you have been with us and talked with us or vice versa. <clears throat> and he's saying, do we need those letters? I, Paul, do I need a letter from you? He says, no, you are my letter. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart. So it's just another example of how he uses this, this uh, contrast <clears throat> between the old law written on stone where in many cases they were told, with your lips you honor me, but your heart is far from me. And this was a characteristic apparently of, of Israel throughout their history and especially into the first century um, when the Pharisees had really uh, expanded that law by human commandments. More modern reminders. <clears throat> Anybody ever have one of these? What does the WWJD mean, stand for? What would Jesus do? Uh, in the 90s, <clears throat> these were popular, <clears throat> and they came in all uh, shapes and sizes and forms. And it was, it was a constant reminder. It was on your wrist that it's not you that live, but Christ who lives in you and through you. What would Jesus do? <clears throat> if I'm confronting a temptation, I know what he would do. Not that I didn't before I had that, but it was just a nice, handy, close attached reminder. Charles Sheldon, uh, in 1800, actually, wrote his book, In His Steps, and the subtitle is What Would Jesus Do? That book had a resurgence in the 1990s and, and I think prompted the use of those What Would Jesus Do? Uh, bracelets. It was usually associated with the bracelets it was <clears throat> that were popular, especially with youth groups and across various groups, binding on the wrist as a reminder that my life <clears throat> is not mine. We often say at the close of a worship service or maybe in, at the close of a prayer, you will hear someone say, remember who you are and whose you are. You are not your own. You are Christ's. And the point there is live like it, remember it, do whatever you have to do to remember that. <clears throat> God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, we are told in Scripture, dwell within us. Ephesians 2. So then you are... are you are of God's household, being fitted together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built up together in a dwelling of God in the Spirit. There's another, there are other passages of God dwelling in us. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and then the Spirit of God dwells in you. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit dwells with you? All three of those dwell within us if we are Christians, and we just have to access uh, what they can do for us in that way. God's word and our faith flow through us, influencing our attitudes and our behaviors. We exhibit Christ-like characteristics. Nothing can pull us from the love of God. Romans 8.38 says and tells us that, <clears throat> I am convinced, Paul says, 
neither death nor life nor angels for principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that comforting? To know that once we become a child of God, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Isn't that a once saved, always saved, text proof passage? So what is the stipulation here? The stipulation is we can separate us from the love of God and the love of Christ. Once we are Christ's, once we have committed ourselves to him, there is nothing that we can be exposed to that can pull us away, can, can sever that relationship without our approval. We can be faithful unto death. That's one of those things that can't separate us, nor death, uh, depth, nor powers, the things present, nor death, nor life, nor angels. Okay, So it's a very comforting feeling that we should have knowing that when we are Christ's, we are Christ's forever as long as we continue to be faithful. Self is a very uh, a selfish thing. God knows how strong our sense of self is. He says, and I think it would have been maybe a little more uh, clear to us if we put the second part first. As you love yourself, we do love ourselves, don't we? As we love ourselves, so love you, your neighbor. It says the same thing this way. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The assumption is, is that you, you do love yourself. We love ourselves. We want to care for ourselves and provide for ourselves. It's an automatic uh, situation. It's a strong motivator. The nature of sin revolves around satisfying self instead of satisfying what we know God wants for us. We can't submit to God unless we sacrifice selfish desires to his will. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 culminates in this. But understand this, that in the last days there will, be, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money and other things. Sin starts with loving self and placing self over and above, higher than what God's will is for us. Romans 8, 7. Mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. These are the things of the world. Do not love the world. If you love the world, you have the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life or pride in possessions, and none of those are from God but from the world. So what happens if we don't? We end up serving self. We don't place others above us. We'll talk about Philippians in just a second. We forget God and his will for us. We develop patterns of habit in this direction and we fall further and further away from him. We think less and less about him and ultimately we fall into uh, apostasy. At least a lukewarmness toward him which we know God hates. So how do you get close to Paul's state? You have to set priorities. What is more important, you or God? Decision and commitment has to be hard and fast and unwavering, and it has to be a diet that you feed on. 
And the way you do that is you study his will. You get closer and closer to God through building your knowledge of him and his uh, grace. Use Jesus as our example and model. Emulate or strive for perfection. Let every thought and action be influenced by that faith. And here's Philippians 4, 8. Whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, excellence, if anything is worthy of praise, says let your mind dwell on those things. How often during the day do you let your mind dwell on those things? Pretty hard to do in just going about our normal business. It's much easier to do if we sit down and open God's word and focus on these things because these are characteristics of Christ that we should try to incorporate in our lives. <clears throat> Here's Galatians uh, 2.20. Crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. The life I live is by faith because God loved me, delivered his son up for me, and I don't want to nullify the grace of God. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, of our faith. And then Philippians 2, 1 through 8. I was going to read that, but we're getting down toward the end, and I'm not going to. Um, it, it talks about placing others above us and why we should do that. And the way we do that is to use Christ as our example. Keep God and Jesus in our forethoughts. Let them guide what we do rather than think about them after the fact when we have not followed what they want us to do. Keep them in our forethoughts. Let Christ live in us and through us the way Paul did. Do everything you can to remain faithful until death. If you are not a Christian, if you have not lived up to that initial commitment that you made in Christ, if you need our prayers or if you need to study with some of us, if you need whatever your need might be, if it is to render uh, initial obedience to the gospel or for some other reason, and you need our help, please come forward as we stand and sing. I've heard of a land of joy and peace, wonderful life. Beautiful place of night, fair skies of the night. Where all who believe the same.